I know practically nothing about birds. Some of you may be bird watchers. You are people who love to look at birds. I don't know anything about birds. I can tell you if they're red or they're blue. I can tell you if they're big or little, but that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge about birds. I've been fascinated by how much I have enjoyed, nevertheless, uh, our own Eli Knapp's new book, The Delightful Horror of Family Birding. Now, I mentioned this, and he was here at the second service, and he was very embarrassed that I talked about him, but it's a great book. He's a good storyteller, lots of things about life, and I'm learning about birds, and, and I'm finding this book very fascinating. And there are a lot of things in the book that over the course of the next months or more, you may hear me re- referencing. But not the other day I was reading a chapter and he began with some words of something like this. We are all united in our vulnerability. We are all united in our vulnerability. And when I read that, it jumped out at me. Because that is so true. We may be vulnerable in different ways, and we may experience vulnerability in different ways, but because we are broken, fallen people living in a broken, fallen world, we struggle. And, and we deal with problems, and we deal with pain, and we deal with burdens. It's a part of life as human beings. And it's not only one of the things that unites us, but it also is something to which the scriptures speak. Because it's so much a part of our existence, the scriptures, like everything else that's so much a part of our existence, have a, have a word for us about it. And one of the places where I, where I sense the scriptures speaking to us about struggles, trouble, difficulties, pain, is here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's in a Roman prison. He is more than likely chained to a guard, a Roman guard, 24 hours a day. They have given him a a certain amount of leeway in that his friends are allowed to come and visit him throughout the day, but he cannot go anywhere. And he is awaiting trial. It's sort of the culmination of his life of difficulties and pain and persecution. And here he is sitting in this cell in Rome. And the church in Philippi has heard about Paul's predicament, and they're concerned about him. They've seen Paul face persecution before, because in Acts 16, it tells us how the church in Philippi started. Paul and Silas are there preaching, and through a series of events, they end up being arrested, beaten and thrown into prison. Later that night, an earthquake happens about midnight and none of the prisoners escape. And the jailer is so impressed by them, particularly having heard them sing hymns despite being beaten and in prison, that he and his family open their hearts to Jesus. The church of Philippi knows Paul's suffering. And as we see at the end of this chapter, Paul says, you too are suffering. And they're concerned about Paul. And they're concerned about how to handle what they're going through. And so one of the reasons Paul writes this letter is to address that. And he begins this letter in chapter 1 by saying, 
I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that God is doing amazing things. He is bringing good out of what I'm experiencing. And the implication is, God will bring good out of what you're experiencing. God is bringing good for Paul himself. He says in in verse 6 of chapter 1, talks about how he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. And he writes that to the Philippians saying, look, God is at work. God is doing things. And through the suffering, God is going to bring you to maturity just as he is me. In chapter 3, Paul writes about how I, I want to know the sufferings of Christ so that I can know the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, you can't get to the resurrection without the suffering first. But the suffering through God's grace can lead to resurrection. And there is a principle that God has sort of built into the universe that often, in fact, probably most of the time, our most significant growth in whatever we're talking about happens through pain and difficulty. If you want to build up your muscles, you have to exert, you have to experience some pain. If you want to get better at something, you have to push yourself and experience some pain. Whatever that may be, it's sort of a principle of the universe. And Paul is saying, God does that with us spiritually. Our most significant moments of spiritual growth happen most of the time through difficult experiences. God is doing good. And God's doing good in you and me and in Paul and the church of Philippi through the difficulties that we face. And sometimes it's hard to see that. But what I find fascinating is that Paul is much more interested in talking about how what he's going through is good for other people than he is of what's good for him. Beginning of verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what I'm experiencing has made a difference in these, these men who are guarding me And in the church here in Rome. You get the sense that Paul is saying, these guards think I'm their captive. The truth of the matter is, they're my captive. Because all the while they're chained to me, I'm talking about Jesus. And I'm showing them Jesus. And after a while, you sort of get the feeling that Paul is saying, and some of them are hearing me. In fact, everybody in the whole palace guard knows I'm here because of Jesus. It's making a difference. And I'm rejoicing in that. That God would use my suffering for the good of others. And and let me tell you what's happening in the church here in Rome. They're watching what I'm going through. They're seeing what God is doing. And they are encouraged. And and, and they're being they're much more bold about their faith and sharing Jesus. And Amazing things are happening here. Isn't it interesting that Paul's greatest excitement is not what God is doing in the good God's doing in him through what he's struggling with, but what God is doing in others through what he's struggling with? There is a level of, of spiritual thinking that that can can process things that way. It's probably a reason. It's probably it's important to note that Philippians is one of the last letters that Paul writes. He's coming to the end of his life. He's learned some things. He's figured out some things. He's matured spiritually. And I think that's a part of how he can come to the place and say, I am, I'm glad God's working in me, but what really excites me is what God is doing in others through what I'm facing. 
in a couple of paragraphs. He's going to write to them in the beginning of chapter 2. But they need the mind of Christ. And what does the mind of Christ look like? It's the one who had everything and refused to grasp it and instead made himself a servant, not for his own good, but for the good of others. There is a sense in which that is the call of the gospel on us. As we follow Jesus, we are following him with the mindset that says, whatever I'm going through, if God can bring good in the lives of other people through it, I will rejoice and celebrate. It's a prayer that says, God, give me grace to celebrate the good things you're doing through what I'm experiencing. It takes grace to get to that and to want that and to pray that. In John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, he's just before the cross, and he says, I want you to know, I know you're going to grieve for a while, but I'm going to, your, joy is going to, your mourning is going to be turned into joy. And the analogy he uses is a woman giving birth. Mandy Smith says that, that having given birth, she says, if you didn't know you were, getting, you were going to have a baby, you might think that the pain meant you were dying. Now, I haven't given birth, but I do know something about the pain of childbirth. Because I, I took me a while for this finger to regain its, its feeling again after being crushed during the contractions that Cindy was experiencing. Second child, I took my ring off. That helped a lot. Because it was getting crushed. And I know the pain of childbirth. And I think it's true. When you know that what's coming, when you understand why this pain is there and that it's leading to something amazing, it's astounding to me how much we can endure when we know that. Paul is saying, look, folks, something good is at the end of this. God doesn't cause these things to happen to us. God is not the instigator of our pain and our struggles, but he is the master of taking what we experience and bringing good out of them in ways that we could never have imagined. And I want you to pray for grace to embrace that. Now, having said that, nowhere does Paul say that that means pain isn't real. You ask a woman in labor if the pain is real, and she will tell you very real. In fact, she might say, come over here and ask me that question. I'll show you. Nowhere in the scripture because, does it say, because God can bring good out of pain, that the pain doesn't matter, that the pain's insignificant, that, that we act as if pain is not real, we live in denial, or that we diminish it. Not once do we see that. It is real. Paul says in verse 17, he writes about these false teachers. And what does he say about them? He said, they're trying to not, they're trying to make my pain worse. Which implies he's already experiencing pain, great pain. And he's not denying that. He said, I, I, I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I was free from these chains. I wish I could, I could get out of this. The pain is real and the difficulties are real and the struggles are real. And to say that God can bring good out of them does not diminish one iota the reality of what we're going through. 
Sometimes I think as Christians we get so enamored with, well, God can bring good out of this, that we almost will say, God, I want to get as much pain as I possibly can to bring good out of it. And I want to look at people and say, are you out of your mind? Why would you want that? I remember a comedian when I was probably in high school, talking about how tough his neighborhood was growing up, and he was always being beaten up and robbed. So he went and took karate lessons. And when he got to that point in the karate lessons where he knew just enough to be dangerous, he decided he wanted to go test it. And so he started walking down alleys with $20 bills hanging out of his pockets, just waiting for somebody to come after him. And they did, and it didn't go well. I think sometimes we have that mindset. Well, if God can bring good out of pain, then why not experience as much pain as we can? And Scripture says, that's just not smart. Jesus tells his disciples in in Matthew chapter 10 that he's sending them out to be as wise as serpents and as innocent of doves. And I think if we paraphrase that, we would say, Jesus is saying to them, look, don't go looking for trouble. I want you to know, I will be with you in the trouble, but don't go looking for it. It's the same way when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, stop worrying about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. We live in a fallen, broken world. Pain and struggle and difficulty is going to come to us. And we don't deny that reality. And the fact that the pain is real leads us to the opposite side of the tension. That even as we are praying for God to give us grace to believe and to rejoice even that he brings good out of our struggles. At the same time, we're praying, God, relieve me of this pain. Help me. Paul writes in in chapter 1, verse 19. He talks about, I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. That's what he wants. Verse 26, he says, when I come to you again, you'll have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. What's the implication of that? God's going to get me out of this and I'm going to be able to come to you. And Paul thanks them for praying for him to be delivered, to be relieved from his pain. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus doing two primary things, teaching and relieving pain. Over and over and over again. Because that's the heart of God, to relieve pain. And to pray for God to relieve pain is, is what we're called to do. Read the Psalms, as well as all kinds of other places. I suspect that the most common prayer, not only in the Psalms, but all throughout the Scriptures, is some form of the simple prayer, help me, God. Here's a, I just found just a few, just a smattering of some of the Psalms, including the one we read a few moments ago. Help me, God. Rescue me, God. Get me out of this, God. And these are some of God's saints who are praying this prayer. There is a way in which that prayer is an act of deep trust in God. Because the alternative to that is to say, God, I'm not sure I want to keep praying because I'm not sure that you are good and I'm not sure that you care And I'm not sure that you can do anything about my troubles. So I'm just going to stop. And I wonder sometimes if the most profound prayer we can ever pray is when we're in that moment of being ready to give up praying. We pray again anyway. We say, God, I don't understand it. 
I don't get it. I'm struggling. But I'm going to trust you enough to pray for your help one more time. Because I believe in who you are. And so we live in this tension of praying for relief from our struggle and pain and at the same time praying for grace to rejoice when God, that God will do good in our struggle and pain. And it's a difficult one to grasp and I think what, what, about the only way we can grasp it and live in that is if we have an eternal perspective of life. And so Paul writes in verse 27 that I want you to live as citizens of heaven. I suspect we could unpack just that phrase, citizens of heaven, for the rest of our lives and we'd never get to the end of it. What does it mean to live as citizens of heaven? Maybe at least one of the things that that means is that we want our lives now to reflect what our lives will be in eternity. That the priorities of eternity are our priorities now. And that we embrace the mind of Christ now that we will live in eternity. To see things the way God does. To want to understand things the way God does. To believe that where we are right now and what we're experiencing in the moment is not all there is. There is more. We've been using the loom as a, as a, a model, a, a symbol throughout these, these conversations about tension. And I want to look at this loom a little bit today. I've taken a picture of the back side of this loom. And it, you will notice, if you can see that, that there are, there are knots. And, and, and there are strands of yarn hanging down that are not really a part of the pattern. And this has minimal amounts of that. You might see some of them where the whole backside is just a mass of, of rattiness and threads all strewn all over the place with no sense to them at all. And the reality is we live on the backside of the tapestry. We live on the ratty side of the tapestry. And sometimes all we can see are the knots and the crisscross strings of yarn. And we look at that and we think, this is just a mess. It means nothing. There's, there's nothing to this that I would ever want to embrace. And we wonder about God. And we wonder about what we're going through. But living as citizens of heaven means that we believe there's a front side and it looks very different. That there's a front side that's beautiful. That has meaning and purpose to it. And to live as citizens of heaven is to stake our claim on that reality. And at the heart of that claim, at the heart of that reality, is a belief that God is good. That despite what things may look like in front of us, and all the rattiness and the messiness of life, that God is good. That he's the master weaver. And that what we can't see isn't all there is. We believe that he is making something beautiful beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. And I wonder if that isn't in Paul's mind when he comes to verse 29 here in chapter 1. And he says, you've been given the privilege 
of not only trusting in Christ, but suffering for Christ. I have to tell you, that boggles my mind to think about that. That word translated privilege is an interesting word. It's used a number of times in the New Testament, and every time it has something to do with giving something generously to someone. It's often translated forgiveness. Because when you give forgiveness, you're giving something undeserved to someone. It, it's describing some, some kind of gift that someone receives that they didn't deserve. It's generosity. And that's why this translation uses the word privilege. And Paul says, we count it a great privilege to be able to trust in Christ. We ought to also count it a great privilege to suffer. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says, there's far more to life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. That's living as citizens of heaven. That's an eternal perspective that is rooted in our belief That God is good and that we can trust Him. And the question for every one of us is do we trust Him? When the pressure's on, when the pain's intense, when the struggle is growing, do we believe that God is good and we can trust Him? Holy Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy that you are good. Give us grace to trust you. To trust you enough to keep praying for relief. To trust you enough to keep praying for grace. In the name of Christ Jesus.